because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show in which we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about a top-notch Cameron Crowe film, Almost Famous. Blue jean baby, LA lady, seamstress for the band. We're excited to welcome back to the show Paul Keelan from Cinematic Underdogs. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm very excited to be here. I had a great time with another round, and I'm excited for another round. It's, hey, <laughs> there it is. That's right. I did right. not think of that beforehand. I didn't. That's great. No, and yeah, it's been a while, actually. And so it's long past due to have you back. And, you know, I felt when we were talking, I wanted a movie that spoke to something that is is close to your heart because you've been in bands, you've been on tour. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on. So Almost Famous, this is the story of a high school writer named William Miller who catches a break to write a piece for Rolling Stone for an up-and-coming rock band, Stillwater. And so he goes on tour with the band and learns about life and love through rock and roll. I feel like that's basically the like tagline of the movie. Mm-hmm. And since it's a film about being in a band on the rise and on tour, but also about being a writer, these are two things that you have done in your life. And I'm curious, Paul, how you feel about the film's portrayal both of bands and of writers. Yeah, I mean, it was a really uncanny viewing too this time because I had seen this as a 12 or 13-year-old, a 13-year-old when it came out. It's interesting to see, re-watching this movie, how much it informed like my late adolescence and my early adulthood as a writer mm-hmm. and, as, and as a band member, and how I think I was like sort of subconsciously reliving a lot of these moments or like the, the mythology of this movie was in the back of my head, yet it was never explicitly in my head. And I think this movie really does get actually a lot of things right. Like it really understands um, on a macro level, like the functions of a tour, the ebbs and flows of a tour. So tell me a bit about your experience being in a band. And um, so you're, you, did you play bass? What instrument did you play in the band? Yes, I was the <laughs> obligatory bass player okay. my whole life. And so throughout high school, I was in a screamo band. I went from pop punk to screamo to emo to back to screamo to hardcore, like kind of all that. Went to college, a few years into college, shopping at a vintage store. Um, Matthew, mustache, straight out of the 70s. This guy's like living forever in the 70s, like leather jacket. You could picture like Matthew McConaughey and Daisy and Fuse, or you could even you could picture even kind of Billy Crudup in this movie. Uh, he's very similar. Um, in vibe comes up to me and like basically talks me into joining his band kind of just like to do par house parties in Oakland but that kind of grows and grows and grows and I end up going on a few tours with them as well what's the band what's this band that band is Bear Wires okay Um, (laughs) 
Matthew's a very prolific、um, garage band artist.、Uh, he grew up with a、uh, a seminal punk in,、uh, persona slash、uh, famous. Individual who passed Jay Retard, so he had this big connection.、Um, so we toured, we recorded a song with Jay Retard, and then we split up. I went in a band. This is like seven degrees of gossip, but I went in the <laughs> band with the drummer. So this is a new band called、uh-huh. Wax Idols. Now I'm in a new kind of like.、Um, it's hard to always describe your own bands, but like、uh, Sushi and the Banshees, kind of、um, a little more right girl, kind of like fast punk. I was the only guy in it. I was the bass player with super long hair,、um, and it was、uh, you know、uh, three female、uh, as well. So that was fun to be the anomaly on the gender role there.、Uh, flipped the script, and、uh, I love that band for like what we. Put out. We put out a record. I think's really killer. I listen to it once every six months or so,、um, and so I, I did kind of tours with them, mini tours.、Um, and then my last big tour was completely from left field. I get like a a text message one day. I'm still in Wax Idols, but、uh, we're just playing kind of playing the Bay Area a lot. And my good buddy from college、uh, was like, "Hey, you want to play bass with me、uh, on a tour?" I have this project with my cousin,、um, and they were on this label, Polyvinyl, which is a pretty big label, and they got picked up by this band of Montreal, which is a, a pretty,、uh, you know, I would say,、uh, important indie band of、totally. our generation. Yeah,、totally. So I went on the whole tour with them. So that was actually. My one moment of like seeing what it's like to be kind of a real band. Wait,、um, so tell. Wait, so、yeah. which? So you were playing with of Montreal, or you were no? You were like, like, yeah, like part of sharing the stage. I was, I was、uh, the opening band. I was the bass player. Sorry, my college buddy was in a band called Painted Palms. Painted Palms. Got it. Skip that. Very important. Yeah. <laughs> So literally, like a crash course. I had to learn all their stuff in like a month,、uh, in like a guest house in、uh, Louisiana, a、uh, Baton Rouge,、oh、like just random. They flew us <laughs> out there. We learned all the stuff. We went on tour, full U.S. tour, like、wow. I think t- like twenty some shows, and we opened with them. And with of Montreal, though I wasn't in the band, but after the second show, I was 
like full time on their, I don't know how to explain it, but they're one of, they're kind of like the Flaming Lips. If, yeah. I think the Flaming Lips are yeah, a little I've, more I've popular. seen them live. Yeah. You've seen of Montreal? Yeah, live? I've seen them live. Yeah. They have like a whole Not show, like a whole stage show. Yeah. Yeah. So I was one of the performers Got like, that would change costumes yeah. backstage throughout that tour. Wait, can, so can I ask what years or year is this tour that you're on? With painted palms and a uh, yeah, I, my dates are pretty bad, but I'm guessing 2012, maybe Did, 11. I mean, I moved hold to on. Korea. I got it. Yeah. All right, hold on, hold on. Did you guys yeah. play New Haven? Yeah, we did. Were you there? Yeah, I was at that show. Wait, I was amazing. I'm, I must have been, or maybe I saw be, them earlier. You saw them earlier for Damn sure. It. You saw them earlier. Okay, well, we, are you sure? We played New Haven though. Um, oh my god! 2012, you're already gone, Jess. You're already in Boston, then. But but Wait, 2011, maybe. 2011, it's possible if if you guys were in New Haven in 2011. <laughs> well, so you 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 so you played Was it Toads? Toads. It must have been Toads. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it's kind it of an underground basement. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like a divey. Smells terrible. And it's there. right on campus. Yeah, yes, it's right there. So okay, yeah. so yeah. that club. This is hilarious. All right, I'm just gonna choose to believe that I saw your band, but I was yeah, yeah. definitely saw of Montreal at some time at my time in Yale, and that building that is right next to Toads. So you saw it, you were like, yeah, it's right on campus. They're like across from it. There's these Gothic buildings that yes, those were yes, dorms. Yes. And then yeah. right down the street from it was another big Gothic building. That was where I lived. That was the Hall of Graduate <laughs> so Studies. That's where I lived. It was <laughs> literally right next to the club. It is so cool that you played Toads. And I either I saw you or I I was very close to well, seeing you. Were you were within a year of seeing you. Within yeah. a year. Because, <laughs> and, and I know that stage show you're talking about because, you know, Montreal kind of famously does these these. You know, there's various acts to their show, and there are people in costumes. So, anyway, that's that's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm very. That's really cool. What a cool experience that must have been to, you know, be with a band like that. That's doing so much. I mean, they're they're so interesting musically, but then also innovative in the live show experience as well. Yeah, I mean, Kevin, who's you know the head of of Montreal, his brother David Barnes does so much you know of the costuming and it's all like self-made props and it's not only him it's a it's a whole team i don't want to say that if anyone people who are like big of montreal fans are <laughs> of course, of course. but yeah. but it's like this really cool brother duo mm. um and just you know they have such a good vibe they're all from athens georgia they're all creatives they're just they're just a ton of fun um they were a blast to be around and yeah that was an amazing experience like just kind of a dream like every show is so much fun um, but what's hilarious is like all these crazy coincidences or, or serendipitous happenings around them is that, and, and this, this sounds very indulgent, but when you first came on our podcast for The Last Dance, um, I literally had to run home because we were like a, a, a few blocks away picking up a desk, okay? And the the person we picked up this desk from is just like a neighbor in our community who was trying to give it away on a Facebook board. And so we invite this person over like that weekend for like wine and cheese and we're talking. And I learned that he hosted our band on that same tour. I just think it's these funny moments with this tour where like I like had these moments like that happen again and again where it's like, oh my gosh, I saw you on this tour and we be, like become friends later. That is so funny. I I mean, this is one of the let's 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 get into the movie a little bit because I think there's this is a nice connection point. I mean, one of the big themes of this film is this that it's a coming of age story, but it's a coming of age story in really unusual circumstances, that being 
being in this kind of magical, unreal, they constantly talk about it as not real, world of the road. And the and one of the coolest things about being on the road, and I think your experience will speak to this as well, is just all these people that you run into and meet, all these characters. And in the film, we constantly are meeting, you know, cool musician guys, also the goofy fans, like the Jay Baruchel character who keeps somehow showing up and he's following Led Zeppelin around, all the band-aids. And it's just such a colorful cast of characters. But the thing that I was like really thinking about more and more is that although it's it's like a heightened reality, it's in a way not that much different just in general from life. You know, like in life, you go through and you meet all these very weird characters. Like college is often that for a lot of people. You meet these weirdos, like some guy in the dorm who... I don't know, refuses to wash his underwear. You know, there's always some strange character. Laura's making a face. There's always some strange character you meet. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think it's a really nice and compelling distillation of that feeling. It, and it's a feeling, really, I think the movie is getting at. And, um, but, I, you know, for, for you, Paul, you were on tour. This is post-college for you, right? When you're on tour? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you... Yes. So you've kind of you're like an adult and you kind of know who you are. I mean, I guess when you're doing the national tour. Um, but um, but I'm curious, did you feel like at any point in your band experience when you were doing the smaller tours or the big ones, like you felt like a little bit like the William character? Not in that you were a writer, but just that you're you're kind of stepping back and seeing this circus and just the chaos of the circus. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you brought up like uh, the Jay Baruchel character keeps showing up right you'd have fans like that who keep showing up yeah. and you know you have those that are just like following you but but you also just have um these just these weird you know degrees of separation that keep happening um but and you brought up the band-aids and one of the, they're such an interesting facet of this film and cameron crow in particular his sort of depiction of them or you know his sort of trying to like be hip and I think deconstruct this notion of what a groupie is, for example. Um, but also try to like reinforce like some of the negative parts of the gender dynamics that are going on here. And I kind of want to, I guess, I guess maybe slightly off topic, kind of get into that. Cause I thought it was so interesting this time, especially the Penny Lane character um, and the psychological, um, I guess, friction she has. And I, I saw so many people rating uh, her character as this enigma who's like extremely just like invincible but i i saw her just extremely like pained the whole movie like she's like in so much and pain and just guarding it and shielding it and this movie is really uh there's some moments that are so painful to watch right like when she gets basically the boot for a case of beer yes, on the politics that surround that and so forth. And I know, um, and what I, what I thought was interesting though, was like, I couldn't ever get a pulse or like put my finger on Crow's opinion on anything. And I like that about it. I love his, his approach. And I just want to, I guess hear both of your, your takes on some of like the, the power dynamics of relationships in this movie. And, and just, did you feel like he favored like, a certain gender or I was trying to make a critique. Let's talk about Penny Lane first. Uh, the scene that you brought up um, 
is actually, I think, my favorite scene in the film. I was rewatching it right before we jumped on, and and this is the scene where Penny Lane, they're on tour, and Penny Lane has pulled William aside, and and she's she's saying, "I think I know what's bothering you. You're worried about me and Russell." And he says, "Look, I've learned, like he he has learned, but he's trying not to tell her that Russell, his wife, is coming, and." He does. He says, "Don't go to New York. The wife's gonna be there, and so on." Like, um, and she says to him, "You should be happy for me. You don't know what he says to me in private. Maybe it is love, as much as it can be for somebody." Who sold you to humble pie for fifty bucks and a case of beer? I was there. I was there. She's hearkening back there. She's calling back to these scenes where we constantly see her and Russell behind closed doors and William being shut out. And we don't know what's going on there. But to hear her tell it, Russell is saying that he loves her and that he's going to leave his wife for her and so on. But to your point, Paul, I think Penny Lane in those scenes embodies two dimensions of like life on the road. She, she both knows it's fake. She constantly calls it not real. But she's caught up in it, just like we are in the movie. She falls in love despite her better judgment. She, she, she wants to not fall in love, but she does anyway, even knowing it's not real and probably can't work and so on. She's holding out hope. She's a hopeless romantic. And I yeah. think there's my sense is that Crow loves her as a character. And one piece of evidence for that is in that scene, um, William does say the thing you mentioned. He says, well, he finally says, like, this guy doesn't love you. He sold you to Humble Pie for a case of beer. And then we get a long shot on Kate Hudson, and she's backlit. She's literally glowing. I mean, she's backlit in this perfect sunlight, sort of dusk scene, sunset scene. And um, she turns away from the camera, but we hold... She turns back, she's crying, but she smiles anyway, right? It's again embodying the duality of like, I'm sad because I know something, I've real, I, I have to confront something I always knew, but I'm smiling because this is the fakeness. This is the, we're in this fantasy world. We can't dwell on the unhappiness. And then she makes the joke, right? What kind of beer? And I think Kate Hudson's performance in that moment is amazing. Amazing, And I think it just, it really embodies all these elements of, of the film about this sort of dual nature of like the intuitiveness as the way you put it, Paul, is the intuitiveness and the kind of analytical or observatory. And the way I would put it in this part, I think it's like the duality between the sort of fakeness and the desire to live in that fakeness, this ephemera of the, of the road. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't, I hadn't, I haven't seen what you saw, Paul, about like her, the descriptions of her being like an enigma or an or impervious because, yeah, I agree with you. I think she's like in a lot of pain. Um, and, and I think even just like the little snippets that we get of the fact that we don't really know much about her past. She's using this fake name. She reveals a little bit to it after she has her overdose and you see her and William walking and she sort of has like given her her life story, which we're not privy to as an audience, but you can surmise it's been a tough life story up until this moment. I think she's something like I've done twice the things, the things that I said I've done. Um, and, um, 
I think, you know, probably she, she doesn't necessarily seem like she has regrets about that and where she's been, but that some of those experiences were hard for her. Um, but yeah, she's just, she's, she's like, you can't keep her down though. She's so buoyant, even as she's like been through that pain and like, yeah, I think she's like an amazing character. And it's true that the men in, in this, in this world think that the women are just the pawns to be moved around and to be, you know, bet away or that it's very easy for, you know, for Russell to say like, Hey, my wife is coming. Leslie's coming this weekend. So don't be here. You know? And he says like, there's no hard feelings because he, he doesn't think of her as, well, he also thinks they're all on the same page. He thinks they're all on the same page. And so on. Even though I say these things, it's understood it's play acting or whatever. But, that might be how the men think about the women, but the women are portrayed as having a lot of agency, I think, in this movie and, you know, fully aware of what their relationship is to the band, f- forming, like sort of molding that relationship. They talk about like who they are as band-aids and not as groupies. And um, they sort of choose when to come and when to go, right? They're constantly like bopping around from different – I mean, even though they say like – we sold you off to humble pie. Two of those girls just say, screw it. They go to England instead with deep purple or something, right? Like they're not really, they're not a property and they're not, and they don't act that way either. And, um, and I think, you know, Penny, she, she starts all this, like she both starts it and ends it with Russell. Cause mm-hmm. they, we know that they've had this relationship before and she at first thinks she's going to stay away from Russell. And then she decides, maybe I can be in control this time. Right. You think, and um, we see Anna Paquin kind of narrate that for us when they're at the party act one in which she pretends she doesn't care. Um, But it's all her master plan, right? She just decides to re-engage with Russell. And at the very end, she decides to let him go. She decides to not see him again, to send him instead over to William and to have her wild Morocco experience. Um, So I think like from start to finish, she's in, it's it's her story. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I love that, um, the writer gets aligned more than anyone, I think, with the Band-Aids, right? They're mm-hmm. the ones who truly, the band does as well take him under their wings, right? But but from that first show where he can't get in backstage because of the bouncer, right? He gets um, kind of uh, adopted by them, right? And they kind of are the uh, figures that initiate him into this culture, right? They're the ones really teaching him into this culture, I found that fascinating because it's it's actually so much about, I think, um, there's not really a, a term for it as strong. Maybe you guys know one, but like, you know, sort of an Oedipal complex thing going on with his mom, because it's a really strong aspect of this film, like his relationship to his mom and his own autonomy or agency or sense of like manhood, or I don't mean that like in a masculine sense. I just mean that it's being like an adult, right? Um, you get that from like the relationship dynamic between his sister who leaves him the records and you know right that's kind of his gateway drug right like here's the world and she leaves him the records right so we have then this vector of music being the conduit towards towards i guess enlightenment or towards like a rupturing of the familial in the sense of the way that in in the sense that like the familial can shelter you right can kind of enclose you in this like very uh, tight system and what the tour does and what the band-aids do is they help him, I think, uh, become an adult and reconcile like these two different poles going on because he is a mama's boy too. And I love that about it. Yeah, at the bottom, he's constantly like in love with his mom too, like, and just not in a weird way, but like 
he cares for his mom. Like he cares for her when he talks to her on the phone. He doesn't want to be hurting her by being part of this culture. Um, and I thought that that was such an honest and unique portrayal. Like it, it, it was so anti-rock star, even if he's just the writer. Uh, and I get that he's a young kid, so you kind of have that, like you want to have some parental figure. But I really thought that all that just rang so true and so unique. And even the mom is such an uh, interesting mixture of characteristics, right? She's like very intellectual, yet in some ways she's very conservative, like in the beginning. She just seems like uh, so <laughs> knee-jerk about certain things. They're on like, pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, my, my, my son has been kidnapped by rock stars, the famous line. But, you know, in, in the first like fights in the house with his older sister, I don't know. She, I was like, hmm, I can't get my pulse in her. Like at first, like when she's talking about To Kill a Mockingbird and she's kind of an English professor, I'm like, oh, she's kind of like this like Berkeley hippie figure because I had forgotten so much. Right. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Cause like this culture, this movie is so much about like, it fits and resonates with like Berkeley 60s counterculture, right? It's straight out of that. And the mom is uh, at once hip, but but also like antagonistic towards this specific culture. She is not for the rock culture, right? She thinks they're all like just killing their brain cells. I don't know her exact quote. Um, <laughs> I mean, that I, was interesting. Yeah, I think so talking about the the, the mom, Frances McDormand, um, you know, I think you're right that she in some sense is hip and in some sense isn't. But um, so this film takes place in 1973. And so we can imagine that also I should point out, sorry, there's no father. Yes. So we don't know where the dad is. So, I mean, I think a more reductive version of this movie would have him seeking a father figure. And in a sense he does, he's, he finds them in, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Lester Bangs. He finds it in Russell. Um, and But he also finds these sister figure in Penny, sister, kind of older sister figure, Sash lover in Penny. Um, and um, and so I think there, there are these different mentors that he's bringing into his life. Anyway, 1973. So the mom likely is i mean it, it it could go either way but i think likely she is uh probably was in grad school in the 60s right and so she probably part or 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 maybe 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 she was an early professor but either way she probably participated in the counterculture in the 60s it's good you know seems clear but the counterculture i think importantly compared to the the kind of rock and roll of the 70s was driven by a very specific purpose, namely ending the Vietnam War and securing civil rights. And, and these kinds, it had a, it, there was a movement, you know, built around social justice issues. And the 70s rock is not, right? 70s rock is now the war is over. Civil rights has been secured, although as we all know, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, we've passed the Civil Rights Act and what's left now? It's just get get high and rock out or 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 like uh, um, Jeff is always saying in the band, get off. <laughs> He's always like, I find the one guy who's not getting off and I get him off. <laughs> so, you know, that's what it's all about. And there is this kind of it's like the excess 
without the moral groundedness. Right. She keeps saying you need to be a person of substance. Exactly. I think that's what she is rejecting. I think if like he was going to Woodstock, she would have been fine. She'd be like, okay, well, of course, Moo, you're fighting for this. But she would still scream, don't don't take drugs, as she dropped him off at Woodstock. (laughs) I mean, she's against the drugs, but it's unclear, you know, I mean, that the, the sort of... You know, as we all know, the boomers who all took drugs then became very anti-drug. You know, they all we were all raised by boomers who told us not to do drugs. I know. I took that more smoking pot (laughs) when they were in college. So I took that more as like an anxious mother who wants to like have her arms around her children for as long as possible. She's already had one fly the nest earlier than she intended than she hoped for. And so she's like really hanging on to William and worried about like his well-being and that something bad might happen or that she might lose him to the drugs. Yeah. So I didn't see that as political as much as just like loving her son yeah. and not letting him be uh, free. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, so that's how that's my read on her character. But it, I think you're right, Paul. It's an interesting character because she's not she can't just be easily reduced to cool hippie who just doesn't give a shit about anything or, you know, ultra conservative like she's going to vote for nixon kind of character so yeah no way um she's this she's this weird mixture of opposites in some ways and and then she's once like the most legible mother figure you can imagine like 1973 yeah Um, and i like that you brought up a little bit of this shift right like the wave had crashed hunter thompson right i think said uh, has some famous quotes about the wave crashing in the 70s and when nixon arrives and I mean, his aura is all over this movie as well, like the ghost of Hunter Thompson and his mythos. And they reference him explicitly as like, you can't go do what he does. Uh, they're telling William, the, the Rolling Stone guys, and you know, in terms of like, he's allowed to be sort of gonzo and off the cuff because he's this rarity, right? He's this oddity who's earned it. But I, I do think that there is an interesting thing to be said about that shift in the music between this idealism and this... Um, I don't know what to call it, but this almost realism. And I think to bring it back to Philip Seymour Hoffman and his character, right? He has two sort of central ethos in this movie um, that he preaches to William. And that becomes sort of a refrain throughout the movie is that music needs to be dumb and gloriously uncool, right? And uh, and then I was constantly trying to like see how Stillwater either sort of echoed those qualities or um, had, uh, once again, to use the word friction with those qualities, right? Uh, Because a lot of this movie is set up on the sense of like, here's this mentor who'd given him a lot of advice, right? Like this sage figure. And And a lot of his advice feels very much about like authenticity in art. And you're you're wondering, is this kid going to sell out or like, is he going to be um, seduced by like various like uh, Faustian bargains? And that's what this all is all about, right? It's a fickle line he has to play. He has to be definitely detached enough to see things for as they are, but also open enough <laughs> to not become too much of the enemy that the band rejects him outright. Totally. I, I love that. Yeah, I love that. So you're the kid who's been sending me those articles from the school newspaper. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing some stuff for a local underground paper also. Hey, what do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. Yeah. Well, you'll meet them all again on their long journey to the middle. 
You know, your writing is uh, damn good. It's just a shame you missed out on rock and roll. It's over. Over? It's over. I mean, you got here just in time for the death rattle. Last gasp. Last grope. At least I'm here for that. Yeah, what do you type on? Smith Corona Galaxis Deluxe. Hey, you like Lou Reed? The early stuff. In his new stuff, he's trying to be Bowie. He should just be himself. You take drugs? No. Smart kid. Do either of you feel any connection to Lester Bangs? Or do you sort of just see him as this kind of archetypical writer? Um, because my... I'll say, here's why I think this is... I feel like it's kind of an interesting question. I think Cameron Crowe feels quite a bit of empathy towards Lester Bangs. But I'm curious, do either of you feel that? Or do you just kind of think like, ah, he's, he's just a raving lunatic? No, I at first thought it was Cameron Crowe's entire like thesis. I thought he was yes. almost a proxy for Crowe. Yeah. Espousing some of his like hot takes, almost like a Tarantino-esque fear in the sense that like Tarantino has all these like big movie takes. And so like what, what easier like way to put all your feelings about music into a movie than, than to create like a critic yeah to have like, him as your mouthpiece all these bangers yeah yeah um because i mean the reason i ask this it's okay if we don't have like a strong opinion on it is that um i think lester is he sort of is a cautionary tale as well because he his one of his main things that he says um about the writer is that writers have to be honest and unmerciful but look at where this gets lester i mean He's constantly, and by his own admission, at home alone. Yeah. And he has another funny line that fits on this, which is, which is uh, he's like, all right, nice to meet you, kid. Well, you know, I can't just stand around here talking to all my many fans. <laughs> and then snap, hard cut to, they're at the diner, still talking, presumably hours later. Like, this guy's yeah. got no fans. He's got no friends. He's always he's, home. He's always home. He's on the phone with William at, like, midnight by himself and he's but he's honest about it right he's like i'm not cool like that's fine we're not he even says this like we're not cool i to be fair i think william has the potential to be more interesting and cool than lester in that regard i mean maybe he won't ever be as prolific a writer but he has a chance to live a very different life and i think lester just thinks like this guy is going to be just like me yeah um but i think the, there's a danger to what Lester is giving, right? He's giving, he's dispensing all this wisdom and he's super eloquent and he's a good writer and he's he's incisive, but he's also lonely and bitter. And that bitterness comes through. And, and that's, I think, partly why, I mean, he's, here's a line that he says, good looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts, right? He's just, he's <laughs> always issuing criticisms and cutting remarks on people to so, who who prop you know who are more successful than him and who he's intimidated by and i think that's the kind of cautionary tale because like william now has to ask himself okay i admire this guy because i admire his writing but do i want to be this guy do i want to just be this lonely schlub in my you know surrounded by my records yelling into the void yeah. Um, on a podcast. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's funny because like early in the movie, William gets two speeches from two very different characters, basically trying to advise him on how 
to protect himself because he's just this like wide-eyed baby, like Gerber baby, 15-year-old, right? And they just, people look at him and they're like, oh God, like you are not ready for this, right? So Lester's advice is like, do not be friends with anybody. Do not trust anybody. Be unmerciful. Keep yourself a distance. Know that everybody is going to like stab you in the back, you know, be, and that's, and that's how you stay, that's how you stay safe. Yeah. And Penny similarly kind of gives like a, like a couple shades to the left speech about like the way she, the way she tells the band-aids to live their life, which is to not let anything be too serious not have any real feelings, keep everything light, have everything fun. And she even says, if you feel lonely, go, we can always just go and listen to your friends in the record store, which implies that this life is also lonely. You're surrounded by people, but it's also lonely because you have to keep up a persona and also keep up your walls. Penny doesn't end up being able to do that very, that to follow her own advice in that regard. Um, but I think her failure to do so is like, also informative for William. William's finding a finding a middle ground there and that he kind of still seems stays his like vulnerable, open, earnest, like painfully earnest self throughout yep. this movie. And he comes out the other end okay. He stays true to himself in Lester's sense, but is not on the other hand, He's, is able to forge a connection with all these people. Yeah. And he, care, he has he, a friendship. He care for them and that not necessarily get in the way of like what his ultimate goals are. Yeah. Too. He has a friendship. Like I think it's telling that the very last scene of the movie is him sitting down with Russell in his bedroom, having their conversation. And I, be, you know, I think of it as the spark of a, of a friendship that's going to continue. Yeah, and uh, Russell is himself such an intriguing character, right? Because he's, in one sense, vilified, right? He's very much a narcissist, right? He's got the, even though he's not the lead singer, he's got the lead singer syndrome, yes. right? And that even causes the infighting in the band, which <laughs> happens. That is definitely a dynamic I've seen in my bands. And when uh, someone who's not an, a lead singer gets too much attention, I believe it as petty as it may sound, those conversations happen where they get called out. And what I loved about too this this band, right, is they have these these moments that are incredibly I'm gonna use the same word, petty. And then they have these moments that just ooze authenticity when they're talking as well, right? And 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 they they know that too, right? They they're constantly like concerned and contrite about certain things that they've said now in front of of William throughout the tour and, and how sort of smarmy they come off or just how sort of conceited they come off. Um, and yet they have like these, these moments where they're talking about like those beautiful glimpses or, or the, those, those days, I think uh, um, where both of the main co-creators, right are able to both turn off their brains and enter the instinctual at the same time. And that's when the magic happens, I think he says, right? There's a realness there. And I love that. I really love that about, about their depiction. Yeah, I think it's telling that um, when they're off stage, they're often in conflict, but they're never in conflict on stage. Whenever they're on stage, they seem to be having a great time. And, and they're looking at each other, they're making eye contact, they're smiling. They seem to gel on stage and the conflicts all happen because of, you know, the, the T-shirt or who's getting more attention as you put it, Paul, and so on. Um, it's also stemming from the fact that, to use the word you used, Russell is a narcissist. I mean, he is. And he, he 
admits this as such to William at one point during their early interview where he says, I'm better than all these guys. I've like, we all were friends from back way back when, and I've just gotten way better and I'm kind of being held back by them. Um, which is an in- crazy thing to say. I mean, like, it's just, it's, and he admits these things. This is, I shouldn't say this. This is way too honest. Um, and, you know, I think, like, even though he's never said that explicitly to the band, they all know it, right? It's clear that it just, it just comes across so well. And I mean, I, the performances are a real key component to this. I mean, Jason Lee nails the lead singer who's a little bit too goofy, you know, just a little bit. So he's not that cool. And Crudup is just a little bit better looking, you know, so he can get a little, you know, so you're like, okay, he gets guys got a little more shine on Jason him. Lee in this period of time, I feel like had a career out of being like the hotter guy's friend who like is yeah. friends, like legitimately friends with him, but kind of pissed his friend is hotter than him. Yeah. Like Tom Cruise <laughs> and almost famous. Uh, ben Affleck and, yeah. um, uh, chasing Amy. Like, yeah. I feel like he's often paired like this, like with the hot star and he's just like, come on. Yeah. I'm cool too. You know, but like, he's the funny guy. <laughs> yeah. He's That's the funny the thing. guy. And, and, um, but I really know that dynamic is great. And, and I think it also really highlights something that's cool about being in a band. I mean, cool, or it's a pitfall, which is that, uh, it's not solo act. You got to make decisions together. It's a team sport. And so, you're going to run into these conflicts. Um, a lot of those conflicts, now, Paul, I would imagine you can speak to this. A lot of those conflicts arise at the songwriting level. So we don't see them actually writing songs. We just see them kind of conf- having conflict about certain dynamics and things. But, but re- you know, I, for me, when I was in bands, the, the conflicts would often arise over you know, what song, you know, who's writing what song and then what song are we playing? What direction do we want to take our music? Um, and that kind of thing, which are, you know, those are really hard to resolve. And I, I think that's why it's very hard to maintain a band over more than, you know, just one tour um, because, or one record, because, you know, you're evolving like a relationship you're revolving it together so you're you're changing and growing and there's no guarantee that you're going to change and grow in the same way and and end up doing you know kind of having the same desires 10 years from when you started so i think that's like one of those you know it's kind of cliche to say it uh, the band is like the family and they have to find the same um ways of managing their conflicting personalities that William's family does. And, and, you know, and in the end of the movie, they both are able to do that somehow. Um, Take it. Let's take a good look at it, all right? See, you love this T-shirt. It lets you say everything you want to say. Well, it speaks pretty loudly to me. It's a T-shirt. Do you give a shit about a T-shirt? Just hungry, man. Let's just go out and find some barbecue or something. Look, I'm always gonna tell you the truth. From the very beginning, we said I'm the front man and you're the guitarist with Mystique. That's the dynamic we agreed on. Paige, Plant, Mick, Keith. But somehow it's all turning around. We have got to control what's happening. Well, I think for for me, I was not in a band and I have never been a band aid. And like, I have been to like 
fewer concerts than I can have on one hand, like truly, like I, I just, I'm not um, musically inclined. And so, but for me, this movie is what readily resonated with me was this, the feeling of, um, camp, camp friends, camp romance, like that. I think everybody has been in a circumstance where you are thrown together with a group of people and you spend so much time together in a very brief, but important and intense and intimate time together. And it's like this strange thing where you like both feel like maybe these are relationships that you're forming are the most important and most real and most authentic in your whole life. And you also know that it'll be over in a week or two weeks. And you know that at the same time. And you'll say like, we'll be best friends forever. And my camp friends know me best. And yet you also sort of know that like maybe when you came to camp, you maybe tweaked a few things about your personality, you know, <laughs> like um, you know that you're not maybe your true self here or that like this friendship that you have when you, if you were to take it to your high school, or your middle school would immediately transform, but it doesn't mean like, but somehow, but even knowing that, even understanding that you're in a, then you're an ephemeral short lived experience doesn't make it any more like profound, any less profound. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like when I look back at those times, at those camp times, like it is like watching a Cameron Crowe movie. Like there is music on top of it. Mm -hmm. It's how it feels that it's like in in montage, and set to music that like has all the feelings. <laughs> That's also why people go to concerts. I think is to be with like minded people and to for to like leave their old self, their boring or um. I don't know, the self that's like identified with everyone who knows them in high school just, or whatever, college or whatever, just leave that aside and just go and be kind of a new person for two, three hours and just lose yourself in this sea of people. And and yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, did you, Paul, have you done summer camps and that kind of thing? Like, how does the, that feeling compare to being on the road? Oh, definitely. It, it's you're tapping right into it, and ephemera was the key word here. And I think Penny Lane is the tr true maestro, at least in terms of like setting herself up with the defense mechanisms to try to survive the intensity of the experience, right? The exigency of it. And what's so painful about her, her character, which I tried to bring up earlier, is not that like she's a victim in any sense; is that she both knows that. And, and can overcome it and still has to deal with the pain, but she's so emotionally intelligent and like existentially intelligent that that you just see that conflict on her face. And so she she understands so much and yet she still has to face the truth that that this ephemera will end. And I think that's what both uh, like enlivens and, and animates every moment in the movie with her. And I, I, I really like how she, you know, constantly is telling them it's all happening. You are home, right? It's this idea of, and it's very hippie-ish, right? It's all these mantras of like <laughs> yeah. being in the present moment, right? Yeah. And like one of the big moments in the whole movie is when she takes William's pencil away from him or pen on the side when he's watching the <laughs> show and trying to take notes, right? And it's a, it's a small throwaway moment, but um, it reminded me so much of the scenes of Bob Dylan in uh in uh what is it don't look now don't look up uh, i'm yeah, gonna yeah, botch yeah. there's so many names with some of the same title but the yeah. scorsese doc it's amazing yeah. and there's this like 10 minute 
lecture and Dylan comes off as just a, a brat, like a spoiled brat. Cause he's just, just being just this, uh, I don't know, just this devil's advocate, uh, haunting tease to, to, to a reporter who's trying to get information out of Dylan. I love Dylan for this. He's great at it. He's just deflecting every question, but, but he gives this reporter a huge haranguing that like, it's going to happen too fast and it's all going to happen right now. And you're not going to be able to capture it. So don't try to capture it. He's just trying to tell him like, it's all happening too fast. Like the whole thing is that the speed is the thing and you can't try to capture it. And I think, yeah, that really sort of mirrors that moment where she takes the pencil and this dynamic we've talked about the whole time of, of this dichotomy of the writer and their temporal mode and, and the musical world in that mode. So, yeah, I, we, we um, want to preserve things that are good. It's like in natural inclination to be like, let me preserve this. Let me write it down. Let me try to figure out a way to hold it. But we can't. And that's the that's like the paradox of the road or of life in some sense is like, we can't hold on. Think of it in the case of Elaine. She wants to hold on to her children by just squeezing them and she can't they have to fly free and eventually if you know if things work out right they'll come back and similarly you know um penny lane it's not to be penny and 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 um russell are not meant to be they can't just penny tries to go and like insert herself into his life when she shouldn't uh, by going to the club in new york when his wife is there but that just results in disaster and potentially, you know, she doesn't, but it results in her almost dying because she becomes so depressed. She takes them as a quaalude. So, yeah, I think that there is this impulse to want to hold on to it. But I think the film is gently reminding us that we can't do that. We have to just live in the moment. We have to enjoy the good times and weather the bad times. But um, they're and then really... watch movies that capture the feeling, yeah. like that try to that approximate that feeling. Well, that's <laughs> the thing is is you know Crow was a was as you as you mentioned was a rock journalist and became a filmmaker. Both professions attempting to crystallize and hold on to, and especially you know Crow makes films. I mean this film. It's an incredibly navel gazy film, a film obsessed with in the reliving these past experiences with the understanding of a, of an adult who's had a life, you know, and so on. By the way, Paul, was that the D.A. Pennebaker documentary, Don't Look Back? Yes. You're, yeah, okay. Just wanted to make don't, sure. Don't Look Back. There's Such also a Scorsese good. one, so it's probably from both. Okay, maybe like, There's from scenes both. that are kind of overlapping, yeah. Yeah, the, the Pennebaker right. one is so good. Yeah. Um, that Amazing. movie is <laughs> I, really good. I think yeah. you're right. I think it's from that one. You're right. Not the Scorsese one, so I botched that. <laughs> was the Scorsese but, one Rolling Thunder Review? Is that the... When you had a mind or a yes. different one? Yeah, yeah. And he, I think he has two. I think he has oh one. Uh, I don't know. He has yeah. Rolling Thunder Review, though, as well. He has The but Last the DA, Waltz, yeah. which is about the band. Um, and um, But Rolling Thunder Review is is actually kind of in, also interesting. We didn't need to talk about it. But it's interesting in that it it's all, has all these weird fabrications in it, too, that, that are really, um, it make it like, less of a documentary but also not a mockumentary it's like kind of like genre wise it's really strange um paul i wanted to ask you so um 
as you're talking, I pulled up uh, Cameron Crowe's filmography. And, huh. you know, he hasn't made that many movies. So I'm curious. I'll, I'll list them here. I'm curious where Almost Famous falls for you in the, in the kind of Cameron Crowe filmography rating. So his first movie is Say Anything, which is, a, a, you know, by all accounts, a classic. It's, a, it's, a, it's an lovable 80s film that I watched immediately after a breakup. So Ooh. it will forever be colored by that. And okay. it, it, I can't think of it as just a lovable 80s was this film. Was your high school breakup? When did you watch this? I can't remember. You don't have to name the person. I think I'm just it curious. was in high school. Yes, I think it was in high okay. school. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> singles in 92. And then he has takes a little break and then does Jerry Maguire in 96. And then this film, Almost Famous, 2000. Then Vanilla Sky, right on the heels of this, Vanilla Sky, 2001. Um, then Elizabeth Town, 2005. Now he does some rock docs. I'm going to skip those. Then he does We Bought a Zoo in 2011. And then last film he's done so far is Aloha in 2015. So almost like on an every four year, roughly, uh, cycle he puts out a movie and uh, Paul so yeah tell us I mean what's your relationship with Crow and how do you feel about Almost Famous with respect to his filmography yeah definitely well I think I mentioned it before like I feel like he's such a populist filmmaker and when we we're talking about all the emotions of this film right and trying to like preserve them right I, I read some people calling this movie like a warm hug I'm talking about Almost Famous right just the feeling it gives people and I think that that really uh, makes this maybe his like greatest achievement, his crowning achievement. And and it's for a few reasons. One, because it's very much a memoir film. But also this one, I feel like really captures that warmness, like at its apotheosis. Um, and I, I do love all of his movies to a degree. I'm like a lot more forgiving of some of his lesser ones, like Elizabeth Town. I actually still found endearing um i just particularly like his brand of sentimentality um even though he veers sometimes a little corny especially later like in we bought a zoo um there's something just so earnest about him and another thing i noticed with almost famous was is almost like a greatest hits medley of even though it's kind of in the middle of his career of all his films like, like it has those one-liners that like really take time and skill to write. Like he is a one of the kings of a good one-liner in a film where he builds up to it with multiple like mentions or asides and then it finally culminates in a moment. Um the most obvious ones, right? Like it's I'm a golden god where it's it, it, he brings it up and then uh you know it, he has to try to appease the crowd with another quote i forget what he says and then he says something else on the roof right and it's like there's that funny back and forth i don't oh, know if you remember i'm on drugs i'm on drugs yeah on drugs i'm on <laughs> drugs he's like wait yeah, yeah. i want to yeah. be that's on my last words my last words <laughs> yes, are <laughs> what you. is it? it's all about I the dig music. music i dig music and they're like <laughs> uh, i'm on drugs <laughs> <laughs> he's so good at that right and it's the show me the money line you yeah, know totally. in jerry Maguire. you had me uh, at hello <laughs> yeah it's so emphatic right and and he's doing a broadway of this right a music it just just turned into a musical i was reading sadly um, i think it is already closing <laughs> it's already closing i know I but think... I, I bet i bet it's gonna get picked up or like maybe it'll go hit the road yeah 
Yeah. Um, it's just tough times for theater right now, generally. But. It is tough. Um, one of the things that I was thinking of watching this too was, do we have any like mainstream populists who are touching this sort of sentimental like nerve in us? And I was trying to think of some. I thought of like maybe Mike Mills, you know, who 20th century woman, come on, come on, beginners. Um, I don't know. Can you think of anyone though? Like I, I was mean, really trying to think for like me, who is the person that yeah. hits this is Zeme- is the closest is Zemeckis, but um Oh okay. I thought just you meant in like terms of sentimental kind of especially nostalgia driven. I mean we just watched the Fablemans. Are you not sure, putting Spielberg? The, sure. <laughs> Spielberg, I think is yeah, can get, you know, he mm, he will right. do that. I mean he does he's not defined by that. No, but, he's not defined by that, but yeah. that is definitely um I mean it's just fresh in my mind. The Fablemans. Totally, yeah. The Fablemans, yeah, is kind of fitting that bill. Um in it and the Fablemans does have a kind of related like it, it it is a little bit like a warm hug in a way like i felt like very much like comforted by the movie even though there's things that happen that are rough but it it felt like it was all handled with this kind of loving touch it's, yeah it's the same thing it's a similar feel of like an older man looking back at his mm-hmm. is his at his youthful self and having empathy and an, an older mature empathy for all of the people in his life and love for them and all their flaws and all their complexity. Um, So yeah, I think that's, that's just resonating well a lot with me since we just watched the Fablemans. That's why I love this. Yeah. I love the Fablemans. I love this new Spielberg. Um, A lot of Spielberg though, he's so stuck in, and he's great at it. Right. Um, But, but, it makes him very different from Cameron Crowe, right? He's sucking like big blockbuster yes, totally. formulas and uh, different formulas. And he, he gets that in there. He gets the familial, you know, I was thinking Richard Linklater too mm. might be a good yes. uh, candidate for this. Um, he has another film uh, that came out this year that I compared to The Fablemans uh, at length in my review. And it's Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. And I, I, I'm really saddened that not more people watch that because I think it's it's a really loving and it's more intellectual, I think, because it's really into like pop culture and trivia and minutia of his childhood. But it's also got this tender, observant side to it. I, w- I would say to answer your question, uh, Almost Famous literally is at the top for my crow list and then Jerry Maguire's right under Um and I think he wrote Fast Times at Richmond High. <laughs> yes, which, okay, yeah. he did. Yeah, which is which is a classic. Uh, I, li- I like saying anything a lot. I came into it late, so it's just kind of a nostalgic, or like not a nostalgic, but it was almost like oh, the seminal film. I came at it with a studious eye, which mm-hmm. is not the way you're supposed to come at that film. So I, it's not that I didn't like it. I was just like, see, I already knew it was a cult classic, yeah. and so it was like hard to get into it because I was like one step removed because of that. Um, but but yeah, I, I definitely uh, wish he had more. Like, would continue to put out movies. Yeah, but it feels like yeah. we're due given his schedule. Maybe I maybe I don't know. With the pandemic, he's been things have been bumped back. But yeah, for me, it's almost famous. I mean, it, with the caveat that I haven't seen, we bought a zoo. I haven't seen Elizabeth Town, and I haven't seen Singles. So that's a pretty big caveat because those are three of his eight films. But um. For me, the almost famous is definitely tops. What about you, Laura? I have not seen his whole filmography either, but I think almost famous is at the top. I want to go back to say anything. I think 
similarly, I saw it. I didn't see it in my teens when I ought to have seen it. Like I didn't see it at the same time that I fell in love with Back Breakfast Club, for example. I saw it, you know, a decade after that. And I was disarmed by it. Like I think I was like, oh, I guess I'll, you know, just see this movie that I ought to see because it's part of the the 80s thing and I know the boom box moment and all that. Um, and then I was, but I was like really disarmed by it. Um, but I'd love to go back to it and see how it rates again for me. Because I think the other thing about about Cameron Crowe is that he um, he's also a really good director of movie stars. <laughs> I feel like Kate Hudson's performance for me is something that elevates this movie, um, you know, maybe even above the Fablemans, which has a lot of like good performances, but maybe not like a movie star performance. Like you just are so captivated by Kate Hudson in this movie and um, Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire. You know, I think he really knows how to put somebody who's extraordinarily charismatic on screen. Um, and I love John Cusack. So I'd love to go back to say anything and to reassess. But for now, I think it's it's um, it's say anything. I also have a weird soft spot in my heart for for um, Vanilla Sky. That movie's f- strange, but I love it. Yes, that's his anomaly in the best way. Like that's his yeah. weird experiment. Where yes, uh, I, I don't even know what to say about that because it's not fresh <laughs> enough. I don't want to. I, I need to revisit that one. Um, and uh, since you haven't seen Elizabeth Town, what's in- what's interesting about that one is that, that feels like I, I call it almost famous his like greatest hits medley. That feels like the film where he's almost trying to bank in on what he is. And I think everyone saw that for that. Mm. And I think everyone turned on him for that. It, it became like someone who, the album of, of a band that feel, is starting to feel a little irrelevant. And their insecurities are coming out insofar as they are pulling on all the tricks that worked. And there's something that feels a little forced and cheap about it. And... I guess I was forgiving enough that I just was craving all those familiar beats so much that I was just like happy for it. Like just happy to sit in a theater and have the good Tom Petty needle drop, you know, and the rain soaks kiss scene um, from a, from a film that's also slightly intellectual. Right. And that's another thing about Crow and Linklater and Spielberg is they're really good at marrying the emotional and the intellectual. They, They have both. And so many of our filmmakers, I feel like have one over the other. And and not so many have both, and and I do appreciate that um, about him. Um, I was also thinking that Alexander Payne would be another great yeah, Payne example is too. Uh, but really more more cynical though. I feel like Payne has a much more a you know he's a little bit edge, just a bit more of an edge there um, uh, with Payne. But I totally I I could see it mm-hmm. for some of his films maybe more than others. But um, you're right. Maybe like about Definitely. Schmidt has a little bit more of the sentimentality. Um, well, very well put, Paul. Thank you very much for, for being here. And tell the folks about Cinematic Underdogs. So what's the sort of central conceit of the show? It keeps evolving, but we're we're based on sports movies. So we're going to do the classics. Um, but lately, we've been also doing docu-series, and it's been riveting. I, I really love that. I guess, Justin, you might have sort of helped us segue into that when we did Tokyo Olympiad. Uh, which was a documentary on the uh, the Olympics in Tokyo in the 60s. And lately we've been doing these, you know, behind the scenes, long form stories about like real teams or real sports athletes. And it uh, this is a good episode, too, because there's something really similar about the athlete and the musician. Right. They're both so immersive. They're they're both so um, uh, ephemeral in, in their professional 
tenure. I mean, not a, there's a there's you know the Tom Brady of the world. And there's the Rolling Stones of the world. These like these standout uh, like these these outliers. But everyone else like has like a very small professional window. Um, you know, most rock bands have what ten years. I don't know the average. That would be a great statistic. What's yeah. the average length? Oh, I'm sure it's like band? nothing. Yeah. I'm sure, it's like a but year it, or something. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, we, we we really love to look at, I think, I would say, like the philosophical and uh, genre tropes and systems and the existential elements of sports movies. Um, so we're not going to like give you a summary. Sometimes we forget to give it whatsoever. Um, we're, we're doing very much, I think, similar to what you do here, even though our genre is a little sillier. Um, and you guys get to cherry pick some of the all-time greats. So <laughs> you can find us wherever. Uh, just Google us and you'll see it. Yeah, the podcast is Cinematic Underdogs. And you can find Paul uh, on Twitter at Cinematic Under. Um, mm-hmm. And we are at CowsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com and buy a shirt with two cows on it at cowspod.threadless.com. And in two weeks, we'll be talking about Body Double with returning guest Matt Belenke. Has Matt gone on your show? Yes, yes. So he was a great uh, guest on our show as well. And we're going to have him back too, like in a month. So this is so funny. He, we just made the connect yesterday. He's, well, he's going to come back for Sudden Death because he uh, loves Pittsburgh. Yeah. Nice. Oh, Pittsburgh did you guy. see that uh, Sudden Death is getting a 4K disc release? Oh, sorry, I did. I did not know that until he posted it. Ah, yes. yeah. So very exciting. So... Maybe you can like coordinate the release with the sudden death. Uh, Laura, do you know the plot of sudden death? I'm assuming it's hockey. It's hockey related. It's hockey. Related. <laughs> I it's, like said it like really unsure. I was like, oh my God, I'm But it's your favorite myself. actor, Van Damme. Oh boy. Van Damme. Oh boy. Isn't it like they, like there's a terrorist that takes over a hockey game or something? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. that's more of a, fun. it's a diehard in a hockey uh, arena <laughs> is what it is. It's a diehard movie. Yeah. So it, Matt Stroll would have a field day, right? Not... The whole chapter on it's the Belgian. diehard movies. Oh, he's Belgian. Or Brussels. Yeah, Belgian, right? Is he? Be- yeah, because he's the muscles from Brussels. I think you're right. Okay. I was like, mm. he's not Kevin Kwa, is he? No, okay. no, no, no. no, no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Matt came on with us for uh, poker movies, and he has a great article on that, too. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, yeah. He's like uh, kind of a mini guru, I feel like, on the poker movie subgenre. Cool. Um, he, for years, he was what? Primal Instinct? Was the first we, one? Uh, the first one we did with him was um, Basic Instinct. So, a, yeah. Basic, basic Instinct. instinct. <laughs> yeah. Watching everything tonight. And then, that was and, a great episode. And then we're doing, yeah. So then, so coming up will be Body Double. And so we're kind of keeping the sexy thriller vibe going with Matt. So it should be fun. Yeah. It'll, it'll be fun. Body Double's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but thanks again, Paul. And uh, we'll see everyone in two weeks. Mm-hmm.